Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, a podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krause. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? Happy Easter. I uh, hope you had a fantastic Holy Week. I hope uh, your Easter celebration, even though it was probably uh, locked inside your house, was still very holy and very happy. Uh, my name is Chase Krause. I'm the host of Catholics with Bibles. Joining us today, a really good buddy of mine, Ben West. Ben, how's it going, brother? Oh, it's going good, Chase. How are you? Doing good, man. Doing good. I'm not going to lie for everybody listening right now that has no idea of our, our friendship. I call Ben Benjamin like on a really regular basis, and I totally almost introduced you as Benjamin West, um, like not even joking. I, I would not be sad about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, totally almost happened. Um, well, I'm really excited to have Ben on the show. Um, ben is another one of my buddies uh, back from JP Catholic, studied with me. Um, same age, but he graduated before me because I took a couple years off to do mission work. Um, but I tried to do my best to catch up and be as smart as Ben one day. And, uh, but yeah, so today we're going to talk, still trying every day, man, every day. (laughs) And so today, uh, Ben's here to talk with us about four keys to reading Paul. Paul, I think is, uh, intimidating for a lot of Catholics to read a lot of Christians to read in general, because, He's brilliant, and some of his letters, they just go really, really deep into some serious theology that he either assumes we know um, or you know is trying to teach us, but it's, it's hard to read Paul. So we're going to talk briefly today about you know some keys to read Paul well, to read Paul correctly through a Catholic lens. But before we do that, uh, Ben, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself, man. Sure. Um, well, like you said, we we met at school at JP Catholic. You were, we were in different program tracks, so you were on the new evangelization and master's in theology track. I was doing the media communications post or production track. So I'm a motion designer by trade, but all kinds of other things that I do in my spare time, um, so animation, illustration, writing. I really like writing and I'm in Cincinnati with my wife and two beautiful daughters. And I spend more time on the phone with you than is probably healthy for me, but that's, uh, that's how it goes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, side, side fun, fun fact for everybody listening. So Ben and I were actually working to publish a book together on the importance of Catholic fitness and all that fun stuff and also launching a Catholic fitness apostolate. So keep an eye on that. Uh, if you're following us on uh, Facebook or Instagram or anything like that, um, we're hoping to launch it this summer. Uh, so Ben and I do talk quite a bit um and our wives might, might be a little bit jealous but uh it's okay um they love us and they're, they're patient with us um, so today um the greek word of the day before we before we dive into these four keys to reading paul is kenoo um we hear this word or we see this word in scripture uh, in first corinthians and in philippians 2 the most famous time it's used uh, is in philippians Philippians 2 in that really famous uh, Christological hymn for Christ and says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, all that good stuff in Philippians 2. Um, so kineo is an important word and that is, yeah, emptying himself. So it's to empty or to render void um, is another interpretive option for it, which is pretty intense. Um, so yeah, Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. So it's basically a term for um, humbling yourself, emptying yourself, depriving yourself. Um, so kino'o, that's the Greek word of the day. 
fun fact. Like I said, we're going to be talking about four keys to in, uh, reading Paul. Uh, ben, why do you think this is such an important thing as Catholics that we need to be aware of before we, before we try to read Paul? You mentioned it at the top of the show, I think, um, because Paul is so dense. There's, there's such an intimidation um, to even pick up anything like Romans or Corinthians and, and start trying to work through that. I think I definitely felt um, like a, an intimidation in that a lot of Protestant arguments lean very heavily on things that Paul says um, to support different theologies. And, and so I, I felt very unequipped to address any of those points because every time I would, I would open Paul, it's like he says something brilliant and incredibly dense. And it's like the start of the first sentence. And then he goes on and the entire letter is, is just that, that kind of information. So the importance I think is that Paul being one of the closest in history to Jesus is probably the, the best Christological explainer among the spiritual fathers. And he is, I think indicated as such by figures like Thomas Aquinas, who mention him not as like an apostle or as Paul, but as the apostle. He, mm. he'll, he'll capitalize that in the Summa Theologiae, where yeah. um, Aristotle is the the philosopher, capital P philosopher. And so Paul is the apostle to Thomas Aquinas, which I think shows the importance that he puts on the interpretations of the events in the Gospels um, and why we should, um, why it's worth, worth it to us to really dive into what he has to say. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's actually a really good point because I think Paul, he, Christology is really his thing. So uh, for those who don't know, there's different like branches of theology, theology being the study of God and Christology would be the study of Christ, uh, theology, the study of God. There's biblical theology, there's sacramental theology, there's liturgical theology, there's dogmatic theology. I mean, there's so many branches of theology because God's infinite. There's, there's infinite ways to study him, obviously. Uh, but as Catholics, Christology, I think we do it sometimes, but I think that's almost lacking a lot of times. We're really into like liturgical theology and sacramental theology uh, mm-hmm. from what we like teach other people. I'm thinking of like youth group and you know, what you, what you learn growing up, you learn a lot of sacramental theology, a lot of dogmatic theology, but we don't really study Christology that much, which is a little bit odd, I think. And that, that's basically, yeah, all Paul talks about really. And I think it, one of the things that becomes sort of like the, the key question to Paul in his unique mission um, as an instructor to the Gentiles and like, neo-catechumenists, people who are new to the faith, is, like, why is Jesus so important? Mm. It, sort of like having to build everything from the foundation up. Like, let me let me walk you through this, and I will break it down in extensive detail so that you can see what I see in this relationship with Christ. And so that's, that's really where everything that he talks about stems from, is this question that he's kind of asking himself, and that he's proposing to the churches and, and walking them through and leading them through is like, what does participation in Christ look like? Mm. Um, so the, the things that I'd like to walk through today are like the four kind of themes that he uses to unpack that um, for his audiences. Cause he, he does write to different communities with different needs, but that these are sort of the things that are the, the red thread that are a pervasive part of the arguments throughout. And, and that, are, are sort of like what we can look to as Paul's gift to the church, like his contribution to um, the canon of Catholic thought. Um, so the first of those things is justification and imitation. So I'm I'm not at all qualified to, <laughs> to <laughs> be, be giving any sort of like in-depth 
analysis of, of what Paul means uh, about justification, but that's, that's definitely where the, the conversation starts. And I think there's a lot of study and a lot of great books out there that have been done to really unpack that. A lot of ink spilled. I'd, I'd rather not um, broach some yeah, of the, uh, the more nuanced points uh, of that here. I don't think we have time. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, so there's but, a, there's a, Scott Hahn actually has a, a commentary on Romans um, and the com- uh, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture and um, a really succinct way uh, that he puts it because justification in the old Testament was to, or to live justly to kind of go to the root word is to live in uh, conformity with the covenant law or the covenant norms, right. Of the old Testament. So that we can bring that, that definition into the new Testament by saying we live in accordance with the new covenant. But in order to do that, we have to be justified. So we have to be given, given the grace to live in accordance with that new covenant and uh, the norms, right. The new covenant law that Christ establishes, which is to participate in his body. Um, that's a super non-nuanced definition of justification uh, to be just but yeah it's it's, it's Scott, like, um, like the way scott hein kind of gives it is like in the old testament to be just means to live accordance with in accordance with the with the covenant right with the law it's the same in the new covenant but the, the bar is unreachable without grace basically right so yeah right yeah that's a fantastic way to sum that up uh the the sort of i think consequence of that is um paul, paul tells one of the churches you know, be imitators of me as i am of christ and so part of the new covenant is this adoption as divine sons and daughters. And so the the really, really wild concept that comes out of that is divinization or mm. theosis, yeah. um, as, as different different scholars have also spilled a lot of ink on. Uh, but it's just, I think, probably the most romantic concept when, when, when we're looking at salvation history and, and everything that God has laid forth and all that there is to soak up in the Bible, it's one of my absolute favorite things to reflect on is uh, the catechism puts it this way. So this is why the word became man and the son of God became the son of man. So that by man, so that man entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship might become a son of God. For the son of God became man so that we might become God. And, and that sounds really like almost heretical where it's like, whoa, whoa, we don't become God. Right, right. Um, but to, to participate so fully in who God is that we actually like part of his nature is imparted to us. Mm. Um, that's, if you think about heaven and sort of like what our ultimate destiny is, just like think about that for a second. Um, and, and let that, that ramifications of that soak in that we would be raised so far above our human nature while, while retaining it, um, to become one with the eternal reality. Mm. Um, so, so that's, I think we're uh, sought in the new covenant leads. And so if we are being justified, we're going to brought into the new covenant. That is what we're receiving. So that, that comes with then a consequence because it demands a standard of action. And so that is where Paul starts to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ because Christ is the son. So let us act like sons um, and imitate Christ. So th- that is kind of where, Paul then takes it to the next point, which is as a call to mission. So Jesus Christ came into the world in order to save us. So he didn't just come to say hi. Uh, he came with, with an express intent. And part of imitating him is sharing in that mission. So it's, it's both something that's centripetal and centrifugal which uh, is a, a physics thing, right? They're mm-hmm. the center fleeing and the center seeking forces. 
but the, the, the mission is something that binds the community together, but it's something that also sends the community out. And that's something I think we as Catholics have a responsibility to talk maybe more about is we, we have um, community and I think we need to strengthen our community, especially in this social distancing time. I think we're seeing that as an effect that um, without the sort of regular check-ins on Sundays, like we're having to be really intentional about how we come together and bind ourselves together. Um, but there's a missional aspect that sends us out because because of the importance of the message that we've received. So another one of those verses that's maybe more controversial is Colossians one twenty four, where Paul says, I make up for what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Mm, yeah. um, and and I, I love, again, digging into that, that verse because um, it, it imparts an urgency. There's, there's something still to be accomplished after the, the um, resurrection and ascension. And that the thing that needs to be accomplished is conforming yourself and, and bringing yourself into that new relationship, into that new covenant. And it's, it's something that happens in time. Right. And it's, so it's, and it's all about, that I mean, plays that, out over the, the course of our lives. That idea of like cruciformity, right. It's being conformed to the, to the cross. One of the things that um, we were just going through in my uh, other Bible, my Bible study that I lead with uh, some young adults of a parish, we're going through Romans eight right now. And a lot of the times our Protestant brothers and sisters will point to Romans eight and particularly the last uh, paragraph. And basically that's like their like proof text definition of once saved, always saved. Cause at the end of Romans eight, Paul says, you know, what can separate us from the love of God's Christ Jesus? No, no powers, no principalities, no suffering, no blah, 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 blah. Um, so nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus. And they say, say they point to that and they say, see once saved, always saved, like nothing can separate us. But if you just backtrack in Romans eight, right. In verse uh, 14, it's, Paul says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of a sonship when we cry, Abba, Father. And you're like, wow, yeah, that's beautiful. But if you just like read ahead, verse 17, it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. And so from that moment on, Paul says, yeah, you're sons through baptism, and but you while you never lose your sonship, you can lose your inheritance because you and you lose your inheritance Ooh. by not suffering with Christ. And so the rest of Romans eight, he's basically just proving that point. And so when people point to that last paragraph and say, "See, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus," like nothing, nothing. Paul's saying, "No, like no suffering, no physical affliction can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus." Paul says elsewhere in First Corinthians and. Uh, Galatians 5 and other places that like sin does in fact separate you from Christ Jesus. Sin does separate <laughs> you from Christ. It's but it's suffering that doesn't separate you from Christ. And it, so the only order to become truly heirs is to suffer with him, to be crucified with him, to be co-crucified with him, right? So suffering is an essential part and that is how we cuz Jesus uh, went to his resurrection and ascension to heaven through the cross and so we have to do the same, right? Yeah. And I love that it's, uh, it comes down to that personal choice, that there's, there's that level of involvement of the individual to um, assent to those realities and then conform your life thusly to it. Um, one of the, my favorite quotes from John Paul II, and I'm, I'm sure it's a very popular quote, is um, the freedom consists not in, oh gosh, what is it? Having the oh, ability to, freedom to do whatever do, you want, but yeah. to do what you ought. Yeah. 
something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, which, which is something that, um, echoes, I think, or rather that is an echo of, uh, Romans six eighteen, where, um, it, there's this language of slavery, um, and like you have been slaves of sin, but now you are slaves of righteousness. Um, and so liberation from sin that, that Jesus accomplished on the cross is not this ability to do whatever we want, but it's a new allegiance. Mm. Um, we, we can't escape that, that we are allied to either sin or to God. Um, right. Those are the only options. There yeah, in between. And, and Paul, he's, he asked that question like over and over again uh, with within Romans. He's like, you know, uh, you know, basically. So, do we say you know, grace because uh, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Does that give us liberty to sin? He's like, of course not. Like you, can't, like what? No, that's stupid. And uh, <laughs> um, he's like, he's like, that doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. That means like we're supposed to do like what Christ is telling us to do. It's not just like, oh, we're fine. Like some some like high Calvinists, um, they kind of they take this super far. Um, and they, you know they they say you know once saved always saved. Like if you are baptized and you say I believe in Jesus Christ, you can go out and kill somebody, die that day. But don't worry, you got baptized, you're good you're still you're good to go you're in heaven kind right. of thing and i'm like man that's some really wonky morality theology <laughs> like does that seem right to you right exactly yeah <laughs> so that's awesome so we, we, yeah. we, we we've kind of talked we talked to read about uh, one and two and so going on so there's i was because we're don't have too much time left we make sure we get through uh three and four sure, sure. um before before time's out here so um what what do you what are the yeah. other two keys you think really quick i'm just gonna put a period on that point uh the the call to mission is is we we discussed just now like a lot of the personal conformity as part of that mission sort of like accepting the the salvific work that christ is working within us and i think paul Paul talks equally as much about the the need to extend that to others Mm -hmm. um and so it is this package deal that that's like um this, this loop that goes in and then in and then out and and each each is strengthened by the going in and the going out so it's it's something that he's extending to the churches and then he's requiring the churches extend to um, those in their spheres. So mm. yeah, like you said, we'll, we'll wrap up that point there though. Um, so we've got imitation as the first point, imitation of Christ as the sort of foundational reality, the call to mission as a consequence of that for the second point. Mm. Third point I think is um, anticipated glory. So this is sort of like forward looking to a lot of the, the types of things that we see in the book of revelation. And, and Paul speaks very expressly about the the new reality um, that will be ushered in at the end of time. And so there's he references like Old Testament passages like um, Jeremiah 31 of, of everyone flocking to Zion um, that, that are more apocalyptic focused, sure. um, what things will look like at the end of time. And a lot of this uh, takes place in his letter to the Corinthians. So the, the best, I think, reduction of Paul's speaking on this is that the apocalypse has already started. Mm. So let's just start there. The, the temple imagery, I think, is is where we get a lot of that, that our bodies are now temples. So it builds on uh, the call to mission, uh, to, you know, rectification of um, the order of things by offering sacrifice. We offer the sacrifice in the temple, um, or and, you know, the, the ancient Jews would, would, would do just that. So, our, our bodies are now the temples, and that is where we offer our sacrifice. Mm. Um, so there, Christ has ushered in a new reality. The new covenant has started, and it's, like we mentioned over the last point, like being played out. Um, so one of the ways that that becomes um, 
manifested and visible to um, members of the church is through the sacraments. Mm. And that I think is, is probably the, the, the best place to reflect on um, anticipated glory within Paul's thought is as a sacramental reality. Mm. The, uh, it's like as the fulfillment of Judaic ex- expectations that we will be offering sacrifice, that we will be conforming ourselves to God. And it's like taking the sort of flavor of the the ritual of the Jews, but not necessarily limiting itself to, to those expressions. It is in the new covenant. It is really, I mean, the sacraments serve to substantially unite us to Christ, um, not just in thought, but in our body. Yeah, so this anticipated glory, it's definitely one of those things where, because um, you look at the Old Testament and all of these things they did, and they, they killed animals and, you know, all, like, all this kind of like weird stuff, um, it points to the reality that, that that couldn't really do the trick, right? They were longing for redemption. They were longing for forgiveness of sins. And all of that is accomplished through Christ, and we encounter Christ through the sacraments. So we, we seek forgiveness of sins. Great. The sacrament of confession. We encounter Christ. He forgives us. We seek union with God. Boom. The Eucharist. We're living out these realities that the Israelites dreamed of here and now. And Paul sees that sacramental reality when he talks about in First Corinthians, you know, the Last Supper and all these things. And that apocalypse, you said apocalypse. Apocalypse means just an, an unveiling in Greek, right? So it's not like the end times, but it's, it's uh, we're living in the end times, even though, uh, because it's it's after Christ, even though you know the world's not necessarily ending right now. Even though I, Paul might have actually thought the world was going to end soon, um, but yeah. So this sacramental reality, we're encountering the end times now. We're encountering our final destination, namely heaven, here on earth. Um, Paul even says uh, in Romans eight again. He says, "We're sons, yet we yet not yet. Right? We're sons, yet we wait for the fulfillment of the sons at the resurrection of the bodies, and when we come to that final final glory." Right. Um, so yeah, the anticipated glory, yeah. that's huge. Like you have to know that that's kind of what Paul's talking about a lot of the times, or you're just going to totally miss the mark. Totally. And what a grace to like be um, in the participation of heaven at this moment. Um, and I think one of the further things that increases the urgency of sharing the message with others is the weight of what we are receiving um, and why it's not something to sort of like get bored at on a Sunday. Um, mm, yeah. So much as like, which, which is a difficult thing to do. And, and there's a lot that can um, hinder us on that path, but to, to enter prayerfully and thoughtfully into the celebration of the sacrament and every sacrament, like confession, baptism, uh, everything, marriage that we experience is bound up to this inbreaking of heaven that's, that's just flooding into the world that mm. is often hard to perceive. Um, but to yeah. direct people's eyes there is part of that call to mission, part of what Jesus came to do, part of what we're called to extend to others as well. Yeah. I love that language, that so, inbreaking of heaven. That's beautiful language. That's uh, Dr. John Kincaid. Oh, Dr. Kincaid. <laughs> Dr. John Kincaid, my love man. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. He's the bomb. Yeah, he actually, he's the one who uh, taught me my, my Pauline Epistles class. So this is all, all from him, really. It happens. <laughs> I mean, everybody, everybody learns yeah. from somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. So the that, that wraps up, I think, the, everything on the third point of, of that anticipated glory. And the, the last point, which is probably the most substantial of Paul's contributions, is uh, the analogy of the body of Christ. Mm. Um, it, it's one of those things that I think is so entrenched in our, our common vernacular that we don't think of what it would be like if we didn't have that image. 
and, and something that on reflection just continues to be, you know, reward us um, and, and present deeper and deeper reflections and realities. So become, this whole thing is a process, right? Of imitating Christ, becoming like Christ. And what could be more like Christ than to actually become part of his body? Mm. Yeah. That's, that's like the, the natural con- extension or conclusion of this theosis that we mentioned in the first point. Um, that everything is sort of moving towards it's it's marital and, and that's why revelation has that imagery of the marriage feast is like in marriage to become one flesh and in this marriage between heaven and earth we are literally brought into god's body mm. and that's uh, the importance of that cannot be understated um the, the dignity that we bear as human beings to be able to participate in that incredible reality it, again, should help us in our interactions with others, our interaction with ourselves. Um, and it, like, if we just had that before us every day, we would not have a problem acting justly um, right. in all our interactions because we would see our own worth and the worth, and the worth of others. Yeah. So but another, another, from that, I'd say. <laughs> oh, yes, for sure. Well, that, that's the thing that's made me think of one, another, another branch of theology, spiritual theology. So the study of God through what he reveals to us in prayer, there's spiritual theologians, namely a lot of doctors of the church. And I'm thinking like, you know, Bernard of Clairvaux, Teresa of Avila, John of the cross, uh, Catherine of Siena, each and every one of these basically uses one, like one, uh, one of, a, you know, two or three different analogies to talk about, um, becoming one in body of Christ. So like Bernard of Clairvaux, he, he says it's more of a spousal imagery. So he, his big thing is the song of songs. Mm-hmm. And so he's, you know, he says, you know, when the, the beginning of your spiritual journey, you're, you're merely kissing Christ's feet. And as you grow, you, you go to, to kiss his hands and then, you know, the, the state of union so that, you know, basically you're living a saintly life on earth, which very few of us get to the state of union. It's like a, a kiss of Christ on the mouth, right? You're, you're his spouse. Um, the, and then, Teresa of Avila, he, she uh, uses uh, more of like, or sorry, I should say uh, Catherine of Siena. She uses more like filial language. So namely becoming like sons mm. in the sun. And so no matter which way, which what analogy you use, it's all about becoming family, right? It's all about becoming one mystical body, becoming one flesh uh, with the mystical body of Christ. Because uh, one of the things that uh, it's kind of cool to think about, at least I think about sometimes is you know, what is heaven? Well, it's the it, heaven is the, the participation in the life of the Trinity. And we can't get there by nature because uh, the Trinity has a divine nature and we have human <clears throat> natures. But in Christ becoming man, like you said earlier, we, we can become divine because even in Christ's humanity, he was still the second person of the Trinity. So he got uh, Jesus wasn't a human person. He was a divine person with a human nature. And so even in his humanity, he was still a son of God. So therefore through baptism and through the Holy spirit, even in our humanity through Christ incarnation, we can now be truly called children of God. And, and it's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, all of these different analogies um, when it's, it's basically boils down to, yeah, being in communion with the, the mystical body of Christ. That's, that's it. That's it. That's the goal. Totally. For our listeners or anything like me, um, they have uh, very short attention spans and short memories. So uh, real quick, let's, let's refresh this, <laughs> the, the four points uh, to really just, you know, to keep in mind how we should read Paul. Uh, so that way, if somebody yep. really wants to start diving into Paul, they can keep these kind of four lenses in mind and on. And so that way they can uh, be better prepared to read Paul in the future. Absolutely. So Starting with imitation, that's where, where Paul begins his conversation with the Gentiles. Uh, moving into mission, participation. If we are imitating Christ, we are imitating 
the way that he reached out to others and to humanity, um, and, and including ourselves in that. Third point, anticipated glory, just the, the way in which the, this new covenant and the new reality is working its way into our lives as we speak and throughout time, the ways that that manifests, namely through the sacraments. Um, and then fourthly, the uh, being united to Christ uh, in the, uh, the body of Christ, uh, understanding the, the physical component to that and the, the full adoption of sons that you mentioned there so eloquently. Yeah, that's great. For everybody listening out there, we hope this uh, helps you kind of approach Paul better. Uh, it doesn't make, I mean, Paul's difficult in a lot of different ways, but uh, Ben, do you have any books that you could recommend to people trying to tackle Paul for the first time or just any good books you're reading right now if people want to continue their studies or <laughs> just read for fun? Absolutely. Yeah. There's um, a great book called uh, Becoming the Gospel by Michael J. Gorman. Oh, such uh, a good which, book. Uh, Yes, it rocked my world the first time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm just, just going to leave it at that one. So, because, so just so people uh, aren't surprised to be distracted by anything else. Yeah, just so people <laughs> won't be surprised. Michael Gorman's actually a Methodist, and but he his but but his soteriology, uh, so his his theology of salvation is actually like 98 percent catholic like it's totally in line with catholic thought um there's like maybe two percent more catholic than a lot of catholics yes no yeah so it, we actually uh dr kincaid is a big fan of him and uh yeah so uh, michael gorman if you get the book and you're like this dude's not catholic like dude we know but it's still fan freaking tastic you should read it calm down <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes that would be my only recommendation another one i mentioned earlier if somebody's if you guys are looking to dive into romans scott Hahn has his commentary on the romans that is uh really really good um and it's written uh for it's not an academic uh, approach necessarily even though it is academic in some elements it's meant for any, somebody who even doesn't have any kind of formal theological um background so it's yeah so look, type in scott Hahn uh, commentary on romans and it's it's brilliant and it talks a lot about what ben and i uh, just talked about as well uh, so ben it's been a pleasure my friend always good chatting with you tell kathleen thanks again for letting me steal you uh, <laughs> uh i really appreciate having you on the show brother dude i appreciate you having me it's been a blast once again, thank you everybody for tuning in to Catholics with Bibles. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed everything Ben and I talked about. I'm going to put those books on the show notes as always so you guys can reference them or get them uh, if you guys want. Once again, happy Easter. Really, really uh, hope that each and every one of you are enjoying this resurrection, resurrection season making sure whatever fast you were giving for Lent, as long as it wasn't sinful, uh, you are now drinking the beer or drinking the coffee or taking the warm showers. I don't know, whatever you are, making sure you're rejoicing. Easter is 50 days. So let's make sure we're having a good time. Thank you again for joining us for Catholics with Bibles.